there's a story told, and uh, and I think the facts are pretty are pretty straight. A story told from World War, from the time of World War II. Hey, check it out. We got some music playing. All right, all right. <laughs> it's okay. Just just try to ignore that. We'll get we'll get the we'll get the we'll get the slides back on track. Um, uh, where was I? Oh yes, World War II. Uh, many many years ago. Um, uh, the uh, if you're familiar with the time of World War II. Um, you'll probably remember hearing the stories of what happened in London beginning even before 1940 um, all the way almost to the very end of the war, at least up until um, D-Day, and things started to slow down after that. You know, do you remember what was happening in London during the course of the war between the British and the Germans? Remember what was going on? What was going on in London at that time? Anyone remember? No? Bombing. Bombing. That's right. What was called the Blitzkrieg. The Blitzkrieg, which was this massive uh, bombing. The, the Germans sent their bombers across the channel and bombed London day after day and night after night. And it was just this intense experience. And they began bombing not only London, but they began bombing other strategic locations where they believed there was, there was some military assets or other things that were strategic to the infrastructure of the British Empire, the British nation at the time. And so they're bombing these places, and um, the, the British are trying to figure out how to stop it. And so... At one point, they, they came, or they acquired a little machine about the size of a, of a typewriter. And so if you're under 20-something, um, ask your parents what a typewriter is, and you'll get the idea of what the size was, okay? But it was around the size of a, of a typewriter. It was called an Enigma machine. The British got their hands on this German Enigma machine. What was the Enigma machine? It was the machine that the Germans were using to send secret messages all over their um, territory, right? So the British got their hands on this machine and they thought, boy, if only we could figure out how to use it, then we can decode the messages, then we'll know what they're planning to do, we'll know where the troops are going, we'll know where they intend to bomb, and then we'll be able to get the upper hand in this war. And so they did. They studied it, there was a group of scientists and other researchers and other very intelligent people and math whizzes and the, and the rest who studied this machine and discovered a way to decode it. Well, one of, the first, one of the first messages they decoded was a message that, that indicated the Germans were planning to bomb a certain town. Well, the legend or the story goes that Winston Churchill said, don't warn the town. If you warn the town and they evacuate the town, the Germans will know that we intercepted their message. And they'll change their codes, they'll change their machine, and we'll lose the upper hand. And so, the bombing took place. Some people died. Many businesses were destroyed. All so that the British could maintain control of this secret. And they did, and the Germans had no idea that the British knew that that was going to happen. And little by little, they began to get the upper hand. Little by little, they began to get a foothold. And it changed the course of the war. What a tragedy, though, for those people living in that town, right? And we think, how could their tragedy have turned out for good? We know this. We know this because we can look back and see. We can look back, and of course our hindsight is 
2020, we have good vision looking back. In the midst of it, we don't understand. We don't see what's going on. In fact, we don't know that there are secrets. We don't know that there are negotiations. We don't know that there are, are things happening behind the scenes. We experience the difficulties of life and we don't realize there's something really significant happening behind us. I want to talk about that today. That's what God's Word in this passage that we're going to look at today, and, and you know what? We can find it in all kinds of places in the story of God. Maybe I'll reference a couple of them uh, in a little bit. But what I want us to know is that that the circumstances of our lives and even the motives of people around us don't control us. They don't, they don't prevent God's will from being done. They don't prevent the gospel of Jesus Christ from advancing. That's what Paul discovered in his experience, and that's what Paul taught the Philippians. So let's go to Philippians chapter 1. Verse 12, we'll read to about verse 18, kind of cut it off in the middle there, um, in the middle of verse 18 or near the end of verse 18. But would you uh, follow along with me as I read aloud this from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We pray that today, now, in this moment, your Holy Spirit will move and work in us. God, we are going through difficulties, some of us, challenges that if they were fully known to the rest, we would all be shocked or, or, or heartbroken because, because of them. But God, we know, we know that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We trust you. We know that your purposes and plans are greater than ours. And we know that you can take what others, uh, uh, what others uh, intend for harm and make it good and make it glorious. And you can even increase our joy in you through those circumstances. And we ask that you will do that today for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul has been talking, and I, I want to remind you briefly about some of the themes of this letter up to this point. Paul gets to this point in verse 12, and he begins by saying, I want you to know, brothers, so he's beginning to get into the meat of his letter and kind of get to the reasons why he's writing this letter. They were concerned about him. They were worried about him. They'd heard of his chains, of his bonds, his imprisonment, and they were wondering, what does that mean for us? If somebody like Paul, who's such a great man and such a great missionary and church planter and pastor and theologian, if something like that could happen to him, what about us? What does it mean for our lives? We're no good. We're, we're not good at speaking. We don't, we don't have understanding like he has. We're not preaching and, and doing the things that God has called him to do. What does it mean for us? 
if someone like him is being imprisoned. And remember what Paul said to them. He talked to them and he called them saints in Christ Jesus. He reminded them that they were in Christ Jesus. That means their identity was in him. That they, Yes, they had come from many different backgrounds. They had come from a diverse um, experiences. They were very different people, but they'd all come to faith in Jesus. God had changed their lives, and God had created one church out of all kinds of diversity. Look around you. That's what this church is about, too. We, we come from different places. We come from different backgrounds, different families. Every one of us has a unique story to tell, but in Christ, through faith in Him, God has created us one church, one body. And that's significant. And then he, remember, he thanks God for them. He prays for them. And remember that he shared with them how he, the reasons why he thanks God for them. It's because he hopes and trusts that the gospel work that they are in, invested in and that has been started in them through God will continue on. So he refers to that gospel process. God begins a work. And He continues to work in us through the gospel, creating us, changing us, transforming us by His word, by His truth, by His ways, by our obedience to make us what He wants us to be. That is, people who will stand before God in the final day, stand before Christ in that day blameless, pure, filled with all kinds of fruit, produce, things that came from our life that developed and, and resulted in righteousness so that God would be glorified and praised. And remember, something that I, I didn't emphasize a whole lot, but was hidden there in between these phrases and that phrases, and that is, he's emphasizing for them unity. Unity in the gospel, unity in their love for one another. Remember, he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, he's not, he's not singling them out, but he's saying, hey, you know what? The overseers, those men who are over you, who are leading you, and the deacons who are serving you, they are with you. They're not better than you. They're not more uh, valuable than you, but they're part of you. You are united in Christ. And then, in the passage we looked at last week, he said over and over again, all of you. All of you. And that's not, that, that's not the English Standard Version's way of saying plural you. When he says, you all, you all, that's how the ESV puts it, you all. He's not saying it, it's not a way to say, okay, it's plural, it's y'all, all right? It is all of you. He's using a very specific word. And, and he does that because he wants them to realize that the good work that began in them didn't just begin in some of them. The gospel didn't just work in a few of them, and others of them are kind of like, ah, oh, bummer. You know, I guess, you know, you, you're thanking God for some of us, but not for others of us. No, God, Paul was thanking God for all of them. And he was praising God and praying for them that they would all mature, that they would all grow in their love, in their knowledge, in their discernment. So those are important themes. And then... Paul comes to the situation that he is in. And he comes to the reason why he began, pre or he, he wrote this letter. The circumstances surrounding him that resulted in this letter. And here's the big idea. Here's the big idea that I want you guys to hear. I want you guys to meditate on. And that is this, that true Christian joy, and I put it like that for a reason. I didn't just, it's not just joy, but it's actually Christian joy. And it's not some, uh, uh, some particular view or, or inaccurate view of what Christian means, but it's true Christian joy is experienced in gospel advancement, regardless of circumstances or motives. Okay, what does that mean? Let's take a look. Okay, so that's the big idea from this 
these two short paragraphs, or in some Bibles, one whole paragraph. Um, that's the big idea that I want us to look at this morning. So let's look at the first theme, and that is this. And so I'll put it, diff- I'll put it a slightly different way. Let's personalize it for us, okay? So I'm assuming, and, and this would be true for you if you are in Christ. This is true for you if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you've been bought by his blood, if he is Lord and Savior of your life, okay? But put it this way, personalize it, let's put it this way, we experience joy in gospel advancement regardless of circumstances, okay? So this is another way of restating part of that theme. And, that, and that's in this first paragraph. Let's look at that together. Paul says... I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me... Okay, stop for a second. What has happened to Paul? Well, he referred to it in the last paragraph. He alluded to it. He said that you are partakers with me of grace, and this is verse 7, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word imprisonment is actually the word for bonds or chains, or to use a good uh, English, uh, uh, Elizabethan English word, fetters. Okay? These are the shackles. Okay? The shackles that he had on him that restrained him, that, that, that kept him captive between two soldiers. And he's saying that, and the, the, I, I like to substitute, I, personally, I like to substitute that word um, when I read this, this passage. I, I like to substitute chains or fetters or shackles or something dramatic, dynamic like that, because I think that's really what was going on with him. He wasn't just chilling out in a minimum security prison. He was actually restrained by these chains, both in my chains, he says, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so he's in chains. That's what's happened to them. And he, and he makes that clear, explicit, in verse 13, when he talks about my imprisonment. And again in verse, verse 14, when he says, my imprisonment, or my chains, my shackles. And again in verse 17, when he says, my imprisonment, my chains, my fetters, my shackles that are restraining me in this place. And he says, I want you to know, I want you to, not just, I want you to be aware of, because they're aware of his situation, but he's like, I want you to think this way about it. I want your mind to be at ease about this fact, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Progress, furtherance. That means the gospel has moved forward. It didn't stop. Paul got to prison and the gospel didn't end. His ministry didn't end because of his circumstances. His calling didn't end because he went through difficult times. And notice what he does here. He doesn't grumble about it. He doesn't go, oh, I want you to know. Things are really rough for me here. I'm in a really bad place. And I don't understand what God is doing. I'm, I'm really, really frustrated. And grumble, grumble, grumble. And dispute, dispute, dispute. Because Paul says later in this letter, we'll look at it in a few weeks, he says to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And later he says, brothers, join in imitating me. <laughs> in other words... I didn't grumble about my circumstances. I didn't grumble about my chains. And I didn't dispute either. Some translations put the word questioning. I think it's really good. I, I, I think it's really good that the ESV says it's disputing in, in chapter 2, verse 14. The reason being because I think what he's meaning there is not questioning because the word does have a connotation of question. But he's not asking a question. We ask questions of God all the time. And, and I'm not saying it's wrong to say, God, why is this happening? Or God, what are you doing? <laughs> and it's perfectly legitimate to ask God those questions. But when we begin arguing with God, it's a whole different thing. When we begin disputing with God about things, it's a whole different scenario. 
And it's not that God's going to change his mind or that we're necessarily going to feel better about our arguing. We think we are at first. But what's going to happen is it's going to destroy our joy in him. And Paul says, I'm not doing that. No mention of grumbling. No mention of disputing with God. He just says, you know what? I'm in chains. And guess what? That's furthering the gospel. More people are hearing about this. And look at the two different ways that the gospel was furthered. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now that's the first way. The first way the gospel is advancing in his imprisonment, in his chains, is that people are hearing why he's there. So imagine this scenario. Paul's in chains and here comes a soldier and he's got his four-hour shift and he's got to be chained to this prisoner and, and he's going, oh boy, I got I to gotta look out for this knucklehead and, and why don't they just get this trial over with and execute him and throw him to the lions or put him on a cross so I can get on with my life. I got better things to do. I like, I'd like to get out of Rome and go on to fight some battles, you know, fight the Gauls or something. But they're sitting there and they're going, okay, so Paul, what's your deal? And Paul says, hey, check it out. I know this is in a great circumstance, but I'm here for Jesus. I'm here because God sent his son to live a perfect life to rescue us from our sins and your sins and my sins and not just for the Jewish people but for all people because there is power in this story and people are hearing this story and they're being fascinated by the story of a Jewish man who lived an extraordinary life who did amazing things and who was crucified but didn't just do great things but actually rose from the dead and Paul's like I know those guys. Those are my buddies. I know those guys. They saw him rise from the dead. And not just them, but I saw him too. He appeared to me also. And he's the answer to our problems. He's the answer to the things that are going on in our world. He's the answer to the things that are going on in your life. And the soldier's going, oh, that's, that's quite a story. And so he goes back to the barracks and he goes, Dude, did you guys hear Paul's story? Did you hear why he's here? And he hasn't done anything wrong as far as I can tell. And he's the most joyful prisoner I've ever witnessed. And he tells the story about Jesus. And then he goes back to his household and his family. And he says, you got to hear this story about Jesus and about what he has done and about what, he, what that means for us and for our lives. And Paul is saying... It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, this palace guard or this praetorium, this, this, um, this organization that was there to look out for prisoners in Rome. And he says, not just to them, but to all the rest. Everybody who's connected to me, everyone's connected to these, this, these praetorium soldiers and these guards, they're all hearing that I'm here for Christ. And that's the advancement of the gospel. The gospel is advancing in my circumstances. No matter what, God is going to keep, keep advancing the gospel in all of these situations. Check out the way, the second way that the gospel was advancing. He points out in verse 14. He says, And most of the brothers, and there, by that he means fellow believers in Christ, and they're male or female, but other believers in Christ, having become confident in the, in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, not only has he been able to verbalize the gospel message in his situation, but there are others who have, hearing what is going on with him, and hearing that he is faithful in prison, and hearing that he is joyful and he is not given up on Christ and the message of the gospel, are going, well, what's our excuse? We should be confident in the Lord, just like Paul is. Because he's in prison, he is bold, he is joyful, we should be that way too. What do we have to lose out here? What is, what is keeping us 
from confidently proclaiming the gospel. It's a message of hope. It's a message of salvation, regardless of what, our, what circumstance we find ourselves in. And so he says they were much more bold to speak the word, the word, this word, this message that, that Paul, um, it's, it's, a, it's a code word in the New Testament for the good news, the gospel, the truth about who Jesus is. And they were doing it without fear. That's how the gospel is advancing in Paul's life and in Paul's imprisonment. What about us? Hmm? What circumstances are we going through? What challenges are we facing? (laughs) Do we advance the gospel in all circumstances? In every adversity, trial, suffering, pain? How about this? When we don't experience those things and things seem to be really good, I'll tell you, it's easier for me to hold on to Jesus when things are going difficult because I get desperate. And I say, God, I need you. I need Jesus in my life. I need more of his power. I need more wisdom because things are difficult. Things are challenging. What about when they're good? What about in your successes? What about those circumstances of your life? Paul knew what it was to be brought low. He knew how to abound in every circumstance. He said, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And you know what that meant? That all things? (laughs) He could be content, number one, but also he could advance the gospel in all of those circumstances. That's what he means. That's what he means by that. In that passage, what about us? When you succeed in life, when things are going really well, when things are trouble-free, when things are pleasant and you're experiencing joy and happiness and, and, and maybe even not even those situations, but what about in the mundane? What about in the commonplace? What, in about, what about in the everyday of life where things seem to be just kind of... It's just the grass is growing and I'm getting older every day and I don't know what else is going on. What about in the mundane? Can we, uh, can we rejoice in the gospel and the advancement of the gospel in those circumstances? There's a story from the, from the Old Testament about a man who went through many difficult circumstances. In fact... There were people out to get him. That's, that's, there are many stories like that in the Old Testament. The story I'm thinking of was a man named Joseph. A man who, when he was young, was probably a little bit, little bit too young and cocky. Maybe a, a little more sure of himself than he should have been, maybe for his own good. However, he didn't deserve the treatment he received at the hands of his ten brothers who found him, got him, grabbed him one day when they were out, out away from home and out of town on a, on a little trip. And, and they thought, you know, we hate this guy so much. Let's throw him in this pit and then decide how we're going to kill him. Well, they, they didn't kill him. The oldest brother said, let's not do that. <laughs> let's, let's try to save him and... And they say, okay, well, instead of killing him, we'll sell him into slavery. So they sold him to some slave traders, and that was the last of it. He's gone from our lives for good, that dreamer, that favorite of our fathers. They intended much harm for him. They intended evil for him. But the story goes that Joseph went through more trials, that Joseph went through even greater difficulties, that Joseph went... From the, firing, or from the fire into the firing pan, from the firing pan into the fire, etc., whichever direction that's supposed to go. And things got even more difficult for him until one day he caught the eye of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the ruler of the greatest nation in the known world at the time. And Pharaoh promoted him to number two, second in command. Or was it number one? Maybe... Make it so, number one, I don't know, something like. He was the man. 
And Joseph was able to, through his insight and through God's direction and God's leading, was able to save Egypt from a great famine. And not only Egypt, but all of the surrounding countries. Not only just the surrounding countries, but this one particular group of people who lived in ancient Palestine at the time. A a man with his 11 sons that remained with him and his wife. And they were saved too. Joseph's family. The end of the story is this. Their father dies. The brothers go, oh no, Joseph is going to take revenge on us because we did all of these harmful things to him. And Joseph says, my brothers, it's in the past. I forgive you. I love you. You're my brothers. (laughs) What you intended to harm me, God intended for good. The saving of many lives. How could Joseph who went through so much difficulty by the hands of these men who were standing face to face with him as, as they had grown up and they were older men and, and how he had the power and they didn't, but he could say, I love you brothers, I know you intended harm for me, I know you intended evil for me, but that's all in the past because God had a plan for it. God had a purpose for it. God had a purpose for my slavery. God had a purpose for my imprisonment. And that was to bring about the saving of many lives. What are you going through right now? And you're going, God, what is going on here? What are you doing? How are you working? This doesn't make any sense. Like Joseph, who was faithful to God the whole way through... He never gave up hope on God. He never said, okay, God, you seem to be abandoning me, so whatever. I'm not going to live according to your ways, and I'm not going to do what you've called me to do. I'm not going to act like you want me to act. No, he was faithful to believe, faithful to live the way God had called him to live. Paul had experienced this personally, Many times. I can't help but think that the, the Philippian brothers and sisters would have thought back to Paul's experience when he first went to Philippi. And he shared the gospel with Lydia and the, the other ladies who were, who were with her on a prayer service on a Sabbath morning and preached the gospel to them and they responded and they were saved. And, and I... And, and, and how he saved a, a slave girl from her demon possession so that she could be free of that and free to experience life in Christ. And how all of that, all of the good that he had done, uh, the preaching of the gospel had landed him straight in the Philippi jail where he was and his traveling companion, his partner in the gospel, Silas at the time, were chained up between soldiers. And in the middle of the night, the story goes in Acts chapter 16, there they were praising God and singing hymns. And everybody in the jail heard him. Everybody heard the testimony of Christ, the good news, the word, the gospel. Because Paul and his, and his partner in the gospel, were in jail. And a man who was the jailer heard that message. And when God delivered them that evening from an earthquake, um, that man cried out to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Do you think he would have asked that question had he not heard the testimony? Had he not seen the joy that was in Paul? The joy in the gospel? And the fact that I am here to advance the cause of Christ and advance the gospel in any and every situation I'm in. And that was what Paul was all about. Do you think the jailer would have inquired about salvation from Paul had he not seen that? Had he not heard that testimony and seen that witness? And I think the the church in Philippi, which included the jailer and his family, who is reading this letter and hearing about Paul's next journey into the prisons of the Roman Empire. And he's going, and they're going, 
Paul's advancement of the gospel, defense and confirmation, Paul's imprisonment for Christ. Didn't we see that? We witnessed that with our own eyes. We know what that's like. We can be bold to speak the word too. We in this room can be bold to share Jesus, to proclaim truth to people around us, no matter what. But there was a side to this, though, Paul points out. There was another side to the whole situation. We, we can experience joy and gospel advancement regardless of the circumstances, but Paul says there were people who are advancing the gospel, but their motives weren't pure. How does that work? How can they be truly proclaiming Christ, preaching Him, but their motives are, are messed up? Well, Paul's point, and the point he wants to make to us as we personalize it, is that this, we experience joy in gospel advancement regardless of motives. Regardless of motives. Regardless of people's intentions. Remember, you've... Uh, uh, Joseph said, intended this for evil. But God intended it for good. And that's what Paul was latching onto. And look what he says. He says, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So there are two kinds of people here that Paul was dealing with. And these were people that were in his place, that were in Rome, that were, that were in the church that, that he was a part of, or in the churches, maybe various um, churches throughout Rome, the city of Rome, but he said some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Look at look what he says in verse um, seventeen to uh, to um, explain this further. He said they are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, so they're envious. They're pro- they're envious of Paul. They're rival. This is rivalry. In other words, they've set themselves up against Paul. I preach the gospel, Paul preaches the gospel, but I'm envious of Paul, and I'm a rival of Paul. Rival in what? How can they be a rival in preaching the gospel? But he says there, he says, they're preaching Christ, or proclaiming Christ, in verse 17, out of selfish ambition. Their their ambition, their motivation is themselves. They're proclaiming Christ... But they're really looking out for themselves. And he says they're not preaching or proclaiming Christ sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What could possibly be going on there? I've thought a lot about this. I've thought a lot about this. And I've read some commentaries, and, and most of them are in the same ballpark that I'm thinking of. And that is this. There were people who were emboldened, yes, They were confident in the Lord. They were bold to speak the word. But they saw Paul and his situation as a disgrace to the gospel. As something that was, we need to separate ourselves from Paul. Because he's a a prisoner. And prisoners aren't respected. People like that aren't respected. And people like that, no one's going to want to hear the gospel from somebody like that. He's, he doesn't have any credibility. He has no respect. So we, who are wearing our Sunday best, who are respectable in the community, who have a lot of clout, we are not like Paul. And so they would stand up and they'd say, unlike Paul, who is in prison, I am proclaiming Christ to you out of my freedom, out of my good deeds, out of my uh, loyalty, maybe even, to the government or to, to Rome, or maybe there was something going on like that. Whatever the case was, they set themselves apart from Paul. They didn't want to identify with Paul. So they did their thing. They proclaimed Christ. They were really selfish about it. Because they were more concerned with their own reputation. They were more concerned with the success of their own ministry. And would their reputation or their ministry or their church be tainted if they associated with somebody like Paul? So they were motivated to maybe make Paul look bad. To distinguish themselves in preaching the gospel. Does that seem consistent to you? 
Would that, would that be something that if, if, if you were Paul, you would say, look out for those guys. They're really, met, they're, they're so selfish. They're, they're preaching Christ from bad motives. Don't listen to them and don't go to their churches. Do you think that I would probably be inclined to say something like that myself? But what does Paul say? He says, verse 18, So what then? In other words, so what should I do about all this stuff? We've got people who are proclaiming Christ from selfish ambition, trying to afflict me, trying to make me feel bad in my imprisonment. So what about it? Only that in every way, he says, whether in pretense or in truth, here's, here's the bottom line. Christ is proclaimed. And that's what I have joy in. That's what I'm happy in. That's what I'm glad about. Christ is being proclaimed. They're preaching a true message of Christ even though their motives are a little bit messed up. So he doesn't rail on them. He doesn't call them anathema. He doesn't say, well, they offended me, so therefore, don't don't listen to them. Stay away from those guys. He doesn't call them heretics. He doesn't call them false teachers. He says their motives are kind of messed up. But they're proclaiming Christ. I'm rejoicing in that. Do you ever look at other preachers, churches, ministries? I know that in the world of preachers, preachers look at other preachers and they look at other ministries and they, and they look, how are they doing things down the street? And they go, oh, well, they have so many people come into their church or to their youth group or to their big ministries things or whatever and go, well, you know, I mean, those mega churches, they're, they're probably successful because they're watering down the gospel. But we here in our small struggling church, we are pure. We are blameless. We are preaching the true gospel. And that's why people don't want to come because they don't want to hear the true gospel. Ever that, does that thought ever come through your mind as you're thinking about your own church? You're thinking about why somebody else is successful and you're not? Paul says, get that out of your mind completely. Rejoice that the gospel is being proclaimed. Rejoice that the church down the street or across town has people coming to hear the true gospel of Jesus. Now, that's not to say that there aren't churches that we need to speak out about. And Paul has words for them later on in his letter. But in this situation right now, he's talking about people who have offended him. He's talking about people who are talking bad about him. And he's like, I know that they're saying those bad things about me. I know that they're trying to, trying to benefit from my imprisonment. But you know what? They've got the gospel right. And they keep preaching Jesus, and people keep getting saved. And I'm rejoicing in that. I'm rejoicing in that. What about us? Can we do that? Can we rejoice that other people are preaching the gospel, and other people are hearing the gospel, and people are coming to faith in Christ? Can we rejoice even, even, even to give grace to those, those preachers who've fallen on hard times? Those preachers who have had bad things happening to the, happen to them in ministry. And we say, well, if they would have done that, if they would have done that, you know, they probably had it coming. Can we just stop talking about them and start praying for them too? And saying, you know what? Let's pray for those men. Let's pray for those brothers who've been preaching Jesus and, and maybe they had fallen on hard times. Let's not be like the people in Paul's time who were, who were, who were trying to capitalize on another man's uh, failures or another man's problems. So Paul said, let's preach the gospel. And what is this gospel? He talked about the, the advancement of the gospel in verse 12. He talked about how they spoke the word. He said in verse 15 how they preach Christ. The word preach is the, to evangelize Christ, to actually speak the words of the gospel. 
And then he says in verse 17 and again in verse 18, the word is used proclaim. That was, that was a word that meant herald. That meant like the guy in, in going through town saying, here's the latest news. Here's what's going on in the next city. Or here's what's going on in the next country. Here's the news. And he said These, that's, that's, that's how we proclaim Christ. We declare the news, the good news of Him. So this gospel, this gospel is Jesus. So if we get, if we get Jesus right, we're good. <laughs> we're good. We, we don't preach a gospel of, of good works. We don't preach a gospel of, of if you get your life together, you can come to our church. We don't preach a gospel of, hey, if... You get enough counseling, um, you can, uh, uh, your mind can be fixed and your psyche can be healed, and then you'll be good to go. We're not therapists here. We're not counselors here. We're, we're, we're gospel preachers. We're proclaiming Jesus. And that's significant because the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. It's not about self-fulfillment, self-actualization. It is about rescue. The gospel is about rescue. It is about bringing, being saved from death, brought from death to life. It is like the moment. It's like the moment that you're standing on solid ground after hanging for dear life on the edge of a cliff. It's... It's that moment where you come out of the water onto the beach or onto the pier and you take that gasping breath and the joy and the exhilaration of being saved from that entanglement under the water. It is being released from a lifetime of hopelessness. The imprisonment that keeps us in our sins, that keeps us in our failures, that keeps us in our guilt or in our victimhood. And being released from that, it's being pronounced not guilty when all hope of vindication was gone. And we stand before the judge knowing we're going to receive the full sentence of the law. And instead... We hear the pronouncement, not guilty, paid in full. We find now that we're free, that there's hope, that, that, that we no longer live as we used to live because of Christ. The message that Paul is proclaiming, Paul is advancing, and the only thing that mattered to him, and I would challenge you, it's the only thing that matters to us, and that is Christ. Is Christ being advanced in your life? Is Christ being advanced through the, through the things that you say, through the actions of your life? Can, could people look at your life and say, I can tell you're a Christian. If you ever asked somebody, hey, or told somebody, hey, I'm a Christian, could you tell? And they say, no. We got a problem, folks. We got a real problem. Because they can't tell by our lives, and they can't tell by what we say. That we believe in Jesus, that He's the only hope for our own lives and for their lives and for the world. And, Christ, and, and Paul loved Jesus so much that at the end of this he goes, Look, I don't care what happens to me, whether by life or by death, I'm all about Jesus. I'm rejoicing in that. I'm right now, he's probably, he was probably thinking, Let's get this letter written so we can start up another round of hymn singing. Right here, right now. And I bet you he taught some of those songs to the, to the guards too. And you know, they probably joined with him. That's powerful stuff. That is 
the message that we hold to. The message of life for us. The message of life for the friends, the families, the neighborhoods that are all around us that need to hear. Are we taking it to them? Are we filled with joy in the gospel? I don't, I'm not saying be happy about the, the bad things that are going on. I'm not saying we've we got to be some masochistic Christians that are like, oh, I have cancer. I'm just so glad I have cancer. No. But you know what we're happy in? We're happy in Jesus. Because we know that that is not going to separate us from God in Christ. His love is worth it. His love is, it gives us joy. His gospel gives us joy regardless of the circumstances and regardless of the people around us and the motives that they have for whatever they're doing. Rejoice in the gospel, my friends. Rejoice that it is advancing and join the advance party. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the joy that you give us, that you make in us because of the gospel that, God, we can, we can rejoice in whatever circumstance because we know you are with us. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. Yea, the joy of God that surpasses all understanding guards our hearts, God's guards our minds in Christ Jesus. We love you. We thank you for what you have done in our lives and we ask that you do more, that you advance the gospel in greater ways, that you'll do things in our lives and in our, in our city, our communities, in our homes and families that has never been done before, that blind eyes will see, that dead souls will live for you, faith in you, glorifying you. God, we love you. Do this all for your great name to make much of who you are in Christ. Yes, God, for our joy as well. Amen.